Chapter Sixteen of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Sixteen. The Final Chapter. Torpedo Triumphants, the Saving of England. The French, believing the remnants of the British Navy to be safely shut up at Chatham or Plymouth, and so unsuspicious of any attack, had guarded the entrances to the Solent in very negligent fashion, and for some time no lookouts were visible. In three lines we steamed slowly towards our quarry the collier lily being some three or four cables ahead of us. Our centre line consisted of torpedo-boat number 87, towing astern of her six dummy torpedo-boats, which we had made during our stay at Lamlash. These were each a cable or so apart, the intervals being somewhat irregular, and the tow-line was under water all the way, so as to lessen the weight and save it from being cut through by shot. Our port, or inshore, division consisted of the Ratto, Dasher, and Hornet. The rest formed the starboard attack. All of us, even the dummy boats, flew the Russian ensign. It was a strange feeling to enter thus, as foes, the harbour that had never before been aught but English in the memory of man. Everything having been practised and arranged at Lamlash, we took up this formation without a hitch and, steaming thus in cautious fashion, at length sighted a small vessel ahead, a French scout, which turned her searchlight on the lily. Captain Higgs, who had gone on with lights out so as to attract attention, had picturesquely wrecked his vessel for the occasion, with a dummy fore-funnel shorn of half its length, mainmast broken off short, and imitation shot-holes in her side, the lily looked as though she had just emerged from a hard-fought fight. The Frenchman fired a gun across her bows, as a signal for her to stop, which she immediately did, and, turning a searchlight we had fitted her with, full on the enemy, began making at the same time a series of heterogeneous signals that must have sorely puzzled those who tried to read them. Blinded by the searchlight, their attention occupied by the supposed Russian, none of the enemy saw us steal past until it was too late for them to interfere with our attack. We had passed them, and ahead of us lay two long lines of battleships, some looming up black and silent in the darkness, others lit up by the flashes of the random guns they had already begun to fire. Mostly they used no searchlights, fearing thereby to bewilder their gunners, nor as yet were they certain in which direction to look. Before long, however, a chance beam from the electric light fell upon our leading torpedo-boat, now going for between the lines at her utmost speed, the dummies trailing well out astern of her. I suppose the Russian flag puzzled the French, for there was a lull in the firing, some signalling, shouting, and momentary indecision, but as number 87 reached the farther end of the lines, a vigorous cannonade began again, and at the same instant we heard the detonation of a couple of torpedoes. 
The psychological moment had come. Blake blew his signal whistle. We tore down the Russian flag, hoisting the white ensign in its place, and off we went between the shore and the enemy till we had passed the last of them. Then, circling round, we charged back to complete the work of destruction we had begun. Scarcely a shot came near us, as our torpedoes went home one after the other with a series of the most awful explosions I have ever witnessed. By the time we had been up the lines and down again, a space of but a few minutes, of all that great armada but two ships were left firing, all the rest had sunk or run aground. Our dummy boats, which had received the greater part of the enemy's attentions, held out well, too well, in fact, since, with the exception of the leading boat, they had proved well-nigh indestructible, and, unless we could either destroy or take them away with us, it would be impossible to again practice this brilliant ruse de guerre. As it was, their recovery seriously delayed us, but at length one of the torpedo-boats managed to pick up a buoy that drifted astern of them, and none too soon we made back at full speed. Torpedo-boats were coming out of the harbour in shoals, while ahead we could discern our old acquaintance, the scout we had passed coming in. Blake, who had anticipated some trouble of this sort, at once signalled to our consorts to clear out independently and rendezvous off the needles, and all immediately scattered in accordance with the prearranged plan. The ratto got out untouched, and once past the needles, slowed down to pick up such other vessels of our flotilla as might be about. The Hornet, Dasher, and two torpedo-boats, which had kept in sight, soon joined us, and eventually we made out the three queer-shaped funnels of the Speedy, as she laboured along in our wake, the five remaining dummies towing astern of her. But of our other vessels we saw nothing, though we looked for them long and anxiously. Miss Monckton, who during the attack had been shut up in the cunning tower, now came out on deck, prematurely congratulating herself that the fighting was over. She was soon undeceived, however, by hearing our Commodore giving orders for the attack on the other hostile fleet that we expected to find at Portland. Hitherto the girl had exercised restraint, but the prospect of this fresh danger did away with her self-control, and in front of Thorne and myself, within hearing even of some of the crew, she urged Blake to abandon the enterprise. "'Have I no claim upon you, too? Have not I, your affianced bride, a right to demand that you live for me?' we heard her passionately exclaim, but Blake was inexorable. Ashamed that through my indecision this trouble had come upon us, anxious to mend matters as much as lay in my power, I called out to man and arm ship on my own responsibility, and in the bustle of the moment Blake led her to the conning tower again. Torn by conflicting emotions, compelled to endanger the life of the woman he loved, our skipper never wavered one moment, nor did he even exhibit any signs of annoyance at this last provocation. The certainty of ultimate destruction was now so strong that all other feelings were smothered in its fatalism. The glamour of the death-watch was upon us. So much was this so, that it never occurred to any of us what a pretty scandal Miss Monckton's presence on board would cause, if by any off-chance we should survive. 
I doubt if it ever struck her either, but she, at any rate, was past caring for anything, save her wild desire to save our captain's life. At first we did not think we were being followed, but in this we were mistaken. A few miles from Portland Bill, just as we were making our final dispositions for the attack, several rockets went up astern of us, and after a brief interval these were answered by others ahead. All these signals were similar to those made by the enemy in the Solent, white and green stars turning to red, evidently a distinguishing signal. It had been our intention to stop about here, in order to transfer some spare torpedoes to our boats which were now unarmed, but the discovery of our presence by the enemy made this a grave risk. It seemed better to attack with our larger ships only, and this we started to do. As yet the strangers could not tell our exact whereabouts, while their signals made their own positions pretty plain. Though we were not yet able to discover whether the ships ahead were merely scouts, or the Russian Portland fleet, till this should be ascertained, it was our policy not to attack them, lest, catching the sprat, we should lose the mackerel. Blake altered course, and we stood for the shore at sixteen knots, passing quite unobserved within a mile of the advancing warships. In a few more minutes Portland would be open to us. In the excitement I had forgotten all about Miss Monckton, though I should have known that she would seize any opportunity that might present itself to wreck our plans. When the thought of her suddenly flashed across my mind I started to look for her, but I was too late. Hard by the conning tower was a rocket ready and positioned for firing, the string hanging within easy reach of any one. As I came in sight of it, Blake was standing up by the twelve-pounder, watching the enemy through his night-glasses. Miss Monckton below him was gazing at the rocket. In an instant I divined her purpose, but I was too far away to prevent it. I called out to her not to touch it, but even as I called she pulled the string. With a hiss and a roar the rocket flew blazing into the sky, lighting up the waters all around us, and betraying our exact position to the enemy. Blake dropped his glasses as though he had been shot, and immediately jumped onto the deck beside her. I expected an explosion, but his first words were to inquire whether she was hurt. He was unsuspicious even yet. "'You have done for us now, Lucy,' he said gently, when she had assured him that the rocket had done her no harm. "'How on earth did you manage to get entangled in it?' For a minute there was a pause. Then— "'I did it on purpose,' she answered slowly. "'On purpose?' he repeated, scarce seeming to understand her. "'On purpose. See, the enemy are coming back. We shall be captured. Only capture will save you from your suicidal self.' "'The Rada will never be captured, Lucy. You have only helped to sink her a little sooner,' was all he said. Her motive was so plain— her loving desperation so apparent, that he had not the heart to be angry with her, but on his face came a look that made me wonder whether, holding it to be his duty, he was going to have her thrown overboard. There was no time now for any more speech. The enemy was coming up rapidly, firing randomly at us as they came. Now to port, now to starboard we rushed, but the enemy were not to be shaken off. We and the destroyers might have bolted through them, 
but this would have entailed the sacrifice of the Speedy, and probably of the torpedo-boats as well, and for this Blake was not prepared. The strange vessels, swift as ourselves, kept pace with us. Evidently they were uncertain of our strength and power, and were waiting till daylight should enable them to destroy us at long range. At length the dreaded dawn broke, and we could make out the black forms of hostile cruisers steaming with us as we made down channel. The sea ahead was comparatively clear, and there was just a chance that we might yet get away. Presently the enemy began to signal rapidly. Their leading vessels slowed down. From their lofty tops they had sighted something ahead, but whether it was a death-trap into which we were speeding we could not yet ascertain. Still, whatever might be ahead, we could not stop to fall into the hands of our pursuers, and so we sped along till we made out a number of battleships coming towards us in wide single column of line abreast. Tired out and exhausted as we were, we braced ourselves for another fight, but long ere we had got within range of them, we made out the centre vessel. She could, even at that distance, be none other than the old Thunderer. We approached the fleet warily enough, nevertheless, lest they should prove to be in hostile hands, while they regarded us with equal suspicion. After a while they began to signal to us, and we having made our numbers, which could just be distinguished in the dawning light, they sent on a cruiser flying a white flag. Then, satisfied as to who we were, signalled to us to fall in astern. The Thunderer, it may be remembered, had been badly torpedoed on the first night of the war, and had only got out of dockyard hands in time to be shut up in Plymouth. Her captain semaphored to us that they had broken out of Plymouth Sound the previous night, destroyed some of the blockading fleet, which had already been severely handled by the maker forts, and were now in hot pursuit of the remainder, who had fled away up-channel, and these presumably were some of the ships we had met, and so narrowly escaped from. The fleet, with the Thunderer, consisted of the old ironclads Agincourt, Dreadnought, Hercules, Sultan, Rupert, Neptune, Devastation, Bellerophon, the cruisers Talbot, Sappho, and Phoebe, and one torpedo-boat, a Thornycroft boat whose number I forget, and these were all that was left of the British Navy, save ships on foreign stations, and a ragtag and bobtail fleet of badly damaged ironclads, including the half-completed illustrious, that had been telegraphed to, to break out from Chatham, the forts of which had so far prevented attacks from the land, on the Russians at the Nor. Blake on his part signalled back, that in the last few days we had, between Lamlash and Plymouth, torpedoed the Rurik and two other vessels unknown, that we had been into the Solent the previous night, and during our visit had sunk or disabled some twenty French warships. Further communication was interrupted by a movement of the enemy ahead. It was now light enough to see them fairly well, and we could count a good twenty large ships, besides a number of small craft. Astern of the British ironclads, a dozen or more other ships were visible. A great battle was imminent, a battle against overwhelming odds. The enemy's present movements were confined to a change of formation, however. They made no attempt to attack our entrapped fleet. 
either they hoped to force us to surrender by a show of superior force, or else the daily expected peace made their admirals doubtful as to the advisability of risking the loss of any more ships while destroying the British. It was now quite light, and the rising sun showed us columns of smoke on the eastern horizon, yet another fleet coming up to join in the naval Armageddon. The British admiral, unable to steam at much above ten knots, made no attempt to escape. It would have been utterly useless to try and do so, with the enemy's swift vessels so near. He was practically surrounded. Thorne and I stormed at the dilatoriness of our admiral. "'He's just letting them collect so as to have a good number to strike to,' I said. "'No,' said Blake, coming up to us. "'He thinks the fleet steaming down are our ships from Chatham, though the enemy fancy they are Russians. In any case, the fight will begin in a few minutes more.' He paused, then went on in a strained voice, avoiding our eyes. "'Before it does, Miss Monckton must leave the rattlesnake, and so I want to ask a favour of you, Bovary. We've been shipmates together all through the war, and, on the strength of it, I ask you to leave the ship now.' "'To do what, sir?' I inquired in wonder. "'Miss Monckton must leave the ship. I cannot have her go down with a rattlesnake. Take her off in the boat now, now at once. Get her to the shore, if possible.' or if you cannot do that, on board one of the battleships. I can fight this fight without you, as I've settled what to do, but I cannot send her adrift at the mercy of a couple of blue jackets. But her father, sir, lies dead in the wardroom. The strain and excitement have been too much for him. It's a hard thing to do, old man, I know. It makes you seem a runaway. So I ask instead of order you." "'I am ready, sir,' was all I said, and he grasped my hand in a farewell shake. "'God bless you, Bovary,' he added brokenly. Miss Monckton was half dead from exposure and terror. The sudden death of the old general had completely upset her, and when Blake told her to get into the boat she obeyed him mechanically. I was already in the boat with the single blue jacket that Blake could spare me and directly she had taken her place in the stern, we shoved off, rowing our hardest. Blake, not trusting himself to speak, hurried back to his post on top of the conning-tower. But the sad drama was not ended. We had rowed but a few strokes from the doomed vessel when Miss Monckton awoke to what was going on, and sprang to her feet with a piercing scream of terror that wrung my very heart. "'Edward! Edward! For God's sake, don't send me away from you! Let me stay and die with you! Die with you! I don't want to live when you are gone!' With a strength born of anguish and despair, she seized my oar, and despite my efforts to prevent her, backed water with it. Not daring to meet her eyes, I put my head down to hide my face, and pulled my very hardest against her. Presently her strength failed, and, abandoning the attempt, she made as though to jump into the sea, but holding fast on to her, I prevented that also. Gradually her struggles ceased, and she sank down into the bottom of the boat in a swoon. Over the water, in sad accents, came the voice of Blake. "'Good-bye, my darling! Good-bye!' 
and then the rattlesnake made away to her doom. Guns were firing and signals flying, and through the smoke I could see the light squadrons of the opposing fleets charging at each other. In a moment they seemed to meet, a brief cloud of smoke and flame, then out of the melee emerged the Ratto, Dasher, and Hornet, steering straight for the hostile battleships at thirty miles an hour. The water around them was lashed into foam by the shot and shell, but they held their way unchecked. They reached the leading ironclads, the spume of torpedo explosions rose like water-spouts, then they vanished in the mist, and strain our eyes as we would, no trace of them was visible. The firing increased in intensity, the big guns taking their turn too, for by now some of the belligerent ironclads were within range of each other. Suddenly, through a rift in the smoke, I saw the Ratto, torn and battered, much down by the head. Before her were two huge ironclads that had collided in the confusion caused by Blake's attack. She was evidently sinking, but the British flag still flew from her ensign's staff above the shot-splashed water. Hours seemed to pass as she crawled nearer and nearer to the battleships now towering above her, two or three pregnant minutes at the most. There came a lull in the firing, a lull of foreboding. The ships touched. As they did so, a mighty column of mingled flame and water leaped into the air, and falling, hid everything from my sight. Then came the roar of a terrific explosion, and I knew that Blake and the rattlesnake were no more. He had blown her up in the midst of the foe. So enwrapped was I in watching this terrible episode, that I had left the boat to drift by herself. Shot was now falling around us, and, pull as we would against the tide, we could not gain the shore. In the course of our struggles we were hailed from the thunderer, and soon we were alongside her. The great ironclad slowed down, a rope was thrown to us, and Miss Monckton, still in her swoon, taken on board and sent below. The fight was growing in intensity, and now was not the moment for explanations. I was hastily told off to take the post of a sub who, poor fellow, was already down, but of what I did or how we fared in that battle of giants, I have but little, if any, coherent recollection. It suffices to say that some hours later, when the firing ceased, a large portion of the Plymouth and Chatham squadrons still floated, bruised and battered, but victorious. Guns behind armor had conquered, and seven French and Russian ironclads, now flying the white ensign, were our fruits of victory. The rest of our gallant foes had gone down with colors flying. This battle, as everybody knows, ended the war. The fleet cruised about the channel for a few days, but there were no more fights. The enemy had had enough of it. The last week, thanks mostly to Blake, had cost them some forty warships. The Ratto alone, in blowing up with all that dynamite on board, had taken two ironclads to the bottom with her, and severely damaged a third, and altogether the enemy were without any fleet suitable to continue the war. Their deadly QF guns had made little impression on the Thunderer and her completely armoured consorts, which were soon fit for sea as ever. Cruisers from foreign stations were daily arriving home, having cleared distant waters of all hostile vessels, and the Allies, hampered by nihilists and anarchists at home, 
were only too anxious to end a war that threatened to continue only to their disadvantage. And so, as everyone knows, the great peace came about. In conclusion, I must explain, what I should perhaps have made clearer before, that this little tale is in no way intended to compete with the more elaborate histories of the war that have appeared in the last few years. My claim to be read lies in my being, I fear, the only survivor of those who knew Blake, and were with him when he and his fellow torpedo-men saved England, and laid down their lives for her sake. Whether England was worth the sacrifice is a question that those who look around them cannot have much difficulty in answering. The self-sacrifice of her sailors has brought England a spell of peace again. It has created a large number of desirable berths in the War Pension Office. It has given an open field for the exercise of parliamentary and party fudge for some years to come. But the patriotic outburst of the closing months of 1890-something has fizzled out long ago. The starving of the Navy goes on just as it did before the war, and though improvements have been effected in many details, yet minor considerations outweigh the more important issues as of old. Now and again I hobble to St. Paul's, where some who had been shipmates with them before the war placed a monument to the memory of Blake and the Aaronites, and as I gaze on its stony grandeur, I often wish that my name, too, were on that marble slab. Blake was better dead with glory, for had he lived, all that he had done would scarcely have atoned for his revolt. Indeed, I was court-martialed for my small share in it, and though let off without any special punishment, my naval career ended with the war, the credit and glory of which was usurped by the military. The Navy was thanked for its assistance in the closing days. The mass of the honour went to an army of volunteers that defeated the French, who, Blake's attack having lost them the command of the sea, were retreating in disorderly haste towards Portsmouth. Miss Monckton never recovered from the double shock of that memorable and fateful night. For a while she haunted Blake's tomb, a tall, black-clad figure worn with grief, but she has long since gone to join him where the weary are at rest. This is the end of Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Thank you for listening.